have our own beliefs, our own priors of what one should expect. And if they match onto it, we accept everything along with it. Even if, even if it was a mistake, right? We could, have made, we could have made a mistake and nobody's really looking into it. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Last week, in the first half of our conversation with Brian Nosek and Tim Arrington from the Center for Open Science, we discussed how openness can help accelerate scientific progress. This week, in the second half of our conversation, we talked about their experiences with the Center's efforts to replicate high-profile anti-cancer studies. This episode is sponsored by the Center for Open Science. The Center believes an open exchange of ideas accelerates scientific progress towards solving our most challenging problems. At the Center for Open Science, you can pre-register your research proposals, pre-print your research articles, and share all of your research documentation in one place. Share your research with the world by using their free, innovative tool, the Open Science Framework. Learn more at www.cos.io. Now, back to Parsing Science. One of the Center for Open Science's newer undertakings is the Cancer Biology Reproducibility Project. Brian and I began our conversation with Brian and Tim by asking how the idea for the project came about. Well, I'll give the originating stuff, and then Tim might have some more of the the local part. The uh, project idea emerged from conversations uh, with uh, Elizabeth Irons, who is the CEO of Science Exchange, and William Gunn, who is, uh, works at Mendeley. And uh, th- these conversations started in 2013 when we uh, had started to get some uh, media attention for our reproducibility project in psychology. And Elizabeth saw that, uh, and, and William did too, I presume, uh, and, uh, and thought, well, we, we should do the same thing uh, in our field, cancer biology. And so the three of us started chatting about uh, this as a as an idea, and they uh, and we encouraged them to start to put a uh, proposal together. So they drew up the first draft of a proposal uh, to the Lauren John Arnold Foundation to do a, a similar reproducibility project in cancer biology, uh, and then the Arnold Foundation uh, agreed to fund that. And then that's when we got. Uh, uh, we're able to hire Tim and get him involved to to lead the project uh, all the way till till as it exists now. Yeah, one thing that um, as, as as a main reason why I actually got interested and and was aware of the project was right before that moment, 2013 and 2012, you know, end of 11. Um, there was a lot of noise um, made by the pharmaceutical industry um, through these uh, white papers written by the pharmaceutical companies Amgen and Bayer. Um, talking about their inability to to replicate, to get the same results from uh, academic findings that they were trying to take into the company and see if they could, you know, turn into a, a potential therapeutic. Um, and so that made a lot of noise. I mean, I, that was something that we had, I had constant conversation with, with other academic researchers about, um, one, what does that mean for us? And then you quickly get a little bit farther beyond that claim and you start to say, well, what, what do they mean by that, right? What did they actually, what were the studies that they were talking about? What were the experiments? How'd they do them? What, what were the results? Um, and so it gets to this point of a really, you know, bold claim, but still missing kind of that, that evidence of what does it actually look like? 
Um, and that was, I think, something that really caused myself, but I'm, but I'm sure that was a main driver for Elizabeth and William to approach Brian, because Brian's project in psychology was basically doing the same thing, but doing it completely in the open and saying, I'm going to show you everything that we've done. And I think that's actually one of the things that is exciting about this project um, ever since I've been on it is really trying to be as transparent as possible so that way you can have this huge discussion about what is what do these terms mean and what does this look like opposed to you know trying to distill it down to a number uh, yes it replicated no it didn't with so much research already having been done on the treatment of cancer we wondered how Tim and Brian chose the specific studies that they would seek to replicate here Tim gives us his perspective that's kind of the first stage, right, was how do you even know what to replicate? It sounds great, but there's so much literature out there. And the approach is just to get a sample. And so and that, at that time in 2013, the sampling frame was papers from 2010, 11, and 12, and then trying to measure, trying to, to replicate kind of the big impact papers. Um, and that was defined by, you know, citation rates as well as these altmetric scores in terms of what papers in those years in preclinical cancer biology were making kind of the most noise, that were getting the most attention. Um, so they weren't specifically, you know, fingered. It wasn't as if, you know, Brian or Elizabeth or William or myself said, oh, I want that paper. I want that experiment for whatever reason. It was done because the community itself was essentially paying notice to it for whatever reason. And so that's how we identified all of these different papers. And this just happens to be one of them. Um, and then again, it's the, we can get, when we get into it, we'll realize that we're not even replicating everything within those papers. We still have to distill it down. And that's important to remember from the project standpoint is that it's not focused per se on you know, this specific particular effect because we know it's one original study to one replication. But instead, we're looking for that breadth across to say, well, what if we take a whole bunch of papers and a whole bunch of experiments and, and we collectively look at that, just like the psychology project. That gives us an idea of, well, what is that rate of you know, replicability and, and what are those challenges that might be shared or, or not across the different um, experiments? Um, and that's kind of the, the excitement of this whole process is it is this huge moment of you know, looking at a, a slice of the literature to, to kind of see how well we're doing in terms of communicating and being able to get the same result. Pre-registration and registered reports aim to increase the confidence that the data collection methods and analyses that a researcher plans to use are the same as those that are actually carried out. Tim explains how each of these systems work, as well as the added benefit that registered reports allow for improving a study's design before data collection begins. So pre-registration, right, it's this concept of being able to pre-register your design before you begin the study. And a pre-registration by itself it's just that. It's me as that researcher or research team saying, here, I'm going to make a read-only version of what I plan to do and how I plan to you know, analyze my data before I conduct it. Once you get acceptance of that protocol, as long as you follow through with it, regardless of the results, it's published. And so that really, that really kind of contradicts the publication bias that can occur. But the registered reports option layers peer review on top of it which I think is phenomenal, right? So it's saying, not only am I going to say what I'm doing, but I'm going to have peer review critique it. We'd go through you know, a couple of rounds sometimes, at least one round of peer review where we'd send it off. They'd give us comments back. Sometimes it was, um, hey, you know, you actually doesn't sound like you're doing this right. And so this is, you know, sometimes we could tell it was the original author. And so that's why it's nice to have that informal and formal 
um, approach of interacting with them. They'd give us more insight um, during peer review. Sometimes it'd be the statistician saying, oh, well, did you consider X, Y, Z? You know, maybe the original study didn't have it, but you might encounter it, so make sure you're you know, prepared for this. Um, and you know, there'd just be this really good, helpful discussion about you know, what all those little details about you know, what we were about to do is really making sure that we were thinking through and being reasonable, not just because of what was done, but also what we might encounter and being trying to be prepared for that. And what was fun in this project, mostly because you know the, the fear of being scooped, the fear of somebody else kind of taking your idea and, and beating you to publication, that doesn't exist here because we're doing the same experiment. So if anything, the sooner we could get our protocols out in the public and have them published, the better for us because you know what if somebody looked at it that could give us input, right? That 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 helps us out, um, and you know it lets everybody see what we were planning to do before we even begin the work. Um, we we were publishing two different at distinct stages of what we planned to do, and then what we found after we did it. Um, and again, it was it's usually these are shoved all together in a typical publication, so this just nicely pulls them apart um, and lets everybody see that process. Um, and it's nice for us because you know it, it lets us kind of always look back and say, well, what did we plan to do? Because Sometimes things don't always work out the way you think they're going to work out, and, uh, and that's research, but it's important to know why you made changes. Next, Brian talked with us about what the Cancer Biology Reproducibility Project hopes to contribute to science. In general, the, the project doesn't go and try to reproduce every single finding reported in the paper. It takes a selection, each of the replication efforts takes a selection of those findings uh, and tries to see what of it it can reproduce. And really the inferences that we get are less about any individual finding and more about the body of evidence that we will arrive at across the many replications that we're attempting to do. And this was true in the psychology replication project as well, is that none of the replications provide a definitive conclusion about the original study. It was true or it was false or this is why it didn't reproduce or this is why it did. Uh, each of them is a data point uh, that cumulatively will give us some greater insights on what are challenges for reproducibility. And that's really the goal of these projects is to stimulate that as a meta-scientific enterprise, is trying to understand how we can know what the rate of reproducibility is and then identify those factors that might help us do it better. That includes improvements of communication about the methodology, the issue that sort of Tim uh, got Tim inspired about this in the first place, just figuring out what was done. Uh, issues in the inference process where people may be leveraging multiple analysis strategies and reporting just the best analysis and just the best image and just the best data uh, from many different studies that might make the results look more beautiful than they are. So all of those elements are things that we hope this sort of massive project will help contribute to uh, rather than providing some definitive conclusion. But Tim will have to speak to the particulars of the paper because I'm not a cancer biologist. So I, I have <laughs> very, I, I would mischaracterize it no matter what. Though Brian had another meeting to attend to, Tim was able to stay with us for a while longer. Brian and I were curious to learn how the center went about selecting and getting started on its first cancer replication project. Okay, so yeah, let me give you the big overview of how this whole process works. So let's see, before Brian got off, we were just talking about how these papers are selected. And, and again, that goal there is to have it be 
unbiased, at least in the sense of a, you know, me or some individual purposely wanting it, and, and more around the impact, you know, put that in air quotes, um, that these papers were having. And so in this case, this is a paper that was originally published in 2012. So it was one of those top papers in 2012 in preclinical cancer research that kind of our approach, you know, identified. And as we were just talking about, the first thing we had to do was not just read the paper in depth, but also make sure that we knew, well, which, what are we going to replicate, right? Which of the many experiments that this paper reports, which one are we going to do? And why are we going to, why are we choosing that? And that was actually a really tough question for our team to figure out, um, because you kind of want to do all of them, but you realize that that's, that's not a good use of resources. Again, we're not trying to focus on this particular paper. Um, and what, you, what we were trying to do is just say, well, which ones were the ones that kind of were, were very instrumental in the main claims that the paper was trying to make? Um, and that's how we, we arose at, at this paper, this, this particular experiment that we replicated, because we were very interested in um, kind of the main claim this paper was making that this anti-CD47 antibody was able to inhibit tumor growth, and specifically to do it in the context of an immune component system. Once we identified the experiment, um, we started with the paper. And we would look through the paper and say, OK, well, here's the experiment from what I've read. And this sounds like I understand you know, what should be used, um, how, what, would they, what were the exact procedures, um, and what's the exact approach that I would take. And more times than not, and this, is a great this paper is a good example of that, we'd have more questions than, than answers. Um, and so we'd write, that up, we'd write that out. We'd say, okay, well, let's basically write out a protocol of how somebody would go about doing this and identify what we know and identify what we don't know um, and also put in requests for things that we know are not available. And in this case, um, there's a, there were two materials that, that were not kind of openly available or commercially available. So we'd put all these requests down. Um, as well as the data, we'd say, can we actually have your raw data? Can we actually, you know, that's, you have a nice graph and some images, but can we, can we get more information than that? And so we'd compile that, so it'd be this single document of everything we, we knew and everything that we kind of desired, um, as well as knowing that there's probably so, many, so much more that, that we don't know. And then we'd reach out to the authors. Um, in this case, we reached out to um, the authors that were they were over in uh, Stanford. We do this, you know, just via email, reaching out and say, "Hey, we're replicating your paper. This is what we're going to replicate. Um, here's a document that kind of has a whole bunch of questions. Um, can you help us?" And you know, again, not just with the questions we ask, but anything you think that we should know about how to conduct this experiment. So that way, when we're doing the exact same thing. Um, we know that we're doing it as faithfully as possible, and we, you know, basically, there's no reason to think that it's not going to succeed. Replications may either lend credence to a study's original findings or call them into question. Because of this, those that first carried out a study that's later planned for replication sometimes see it as a threat. The center, however, received a lot of cooperation from the group that published the original cancer treatment study. Doug and I wondered if this was typical in Tim's experience and what he thought helped facilitate the process. What was typical is the concern that we were trying to find something wrong, right? Um, they were, there was this fear of, well, what are you trying to do? Why are you doing this study? You know, others in our field have already done this. Um, what are you going to contribute? And so it's, it's basically having that big high-level conversation that we essentially just had with Brian about, Listen, you know, this is what the aims of the project are. This is how we identified your paper and how we identified these experiments. 
um, and this is kind of our goal. And again, trying to remind them it's it's not about you know per se this one. It's just that yours came up as something that was very impactful, and and this is how we're doing this project and 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 the approach we're taking. And um, what they did, and this was something that um, only a couple labs asked, and it's something that is is important to consider is we're doing this from afar, um, so we're only communicating really over a phone call and largely via written communication. And so they had asked, like, well, why don't you bring, why don't you have your replicating lab come to our lab and we'll teach them what to do. We'll do it with them. And that's actually a really interesting idea. That's pretty common, or at least it used to be very common, um, to actually have somebody like go to another institution and try to figure out, well, what are the differences? Um, but we didn't ever wanted to do that with our project because, well, we'd be able to do a lot less. That's a pretty absorbent cost. Um, and it also asks a slightly different question because that's not how everybody communicates. Not every researcher can go to every other researcher's labs. Because if we did that, especially considering how many researchers there are, we'd probably never get anything done. Um, so that's why we essentially use publications as our form of communication, or we use meetings. And so we basically were using communication as a way to say, well, this is what I've done. This is how I did it. And so we kind of wanted to use this project in that exact same context of not everybody gets to go to another lab because that's not very feasible. So how do we make written communication or sharing of information via you know, online resources um, more efficient, um, since it's not very efficient to go to some, to go to another lab. So once you know, and that's so that's I, I raise that because that's a criticism and it's a fair one of the project, but it's also a different question than what the project's aiming to answer. Um, so after having a nice conversation with them, they were very good about you know giving us raw data. They gave us a very detailed response to all of the questions that we asked, as well as a few additional ones that you know we had not thought of or known of. Um, there were two key reagents that we needed from them. Um, one was the, the cell line, the tumor cell line that we were going to use. We couldn't find it. It wasn't uh, publicly available in a repository or commercially available at a vendor. And we also needed the antibody, the actual therapy that they were testing because they made it um, along with, uh, in, in conjunction with the pharmaceutical or biotech company. Um, and so we obviously didn't have access to that either. And they were great about, you know, saying, well, we can share you the cell line if you can, you know, work out an arrangement with who originally created it. And that worked out really well. Um, you know, that's, that required a material transfer agreement or an MTA. And, uh, and that, thankfully, in this case, went very smoothly. And then for the antibody, they generated it just for us. They, they, for the antibody we were going to test, they created it, they tested it, shared the, their their validation data with us, as well as shipping the uh, the antibody and the cells from Stanford all the way to the lab, Stevens Lab in uh, uh, Maryland. And yeah, so so it was actually a case of them being really incredible. I mean, it's great. They they were very very helpful, and that's and it's tough because that's a lot to ask for them to do um, because there was very little in their paper in their methods section, and so. So it was interesting in the sense that this lab was a great example of communication. And um, we had many labs, many replications we've done where, where we had no communication or very little communication. And so this is actually a nice example of what um, we kind of hope everybody would do, I think. Um, and it was nice just to have that really kind of open conversation about what, what you need to do. Um, again, recognizing that we couldn't go and, and do even what they wanted, which was to go and visit their lab. Like the original study, the center's replication tested the efficacy of a particular anti-cancer treatment. Unlike the original study, they didn't obtain the same results. 
Since academic journals as a whole tend to be biased towards publishing results that support researchers' hypotheses, we were curious to learn from Tim about the center's experience publishing their findings. You know, after we finished this whole project, um, you know, we kind of were writing it up, and we don't see the same result that the original authors saw for the tumor weight so that the endpoint or the efficacy of the, the therapy, but we saw everything else that was the same. So we knew that the antibodies, the drugs were working in this case, uh, the immunotherapy, but we weren't seeing the benefit that the original authors saw. And so then I write up the, write up the results, we submit it back to eLife, and it took a while before we got, we got reviews back, and it's because the peer reviewers were not so happy with, with the result. And so it's actually interesting in this case because they tried to they tried to have us not have the paper accepted, which you can't do in this case. So it actually worked out really well that we were using registered reports because results like this that are not that are essentially null results or you know that essentially do have some confounds. We'll talk about that in a second. Generally, don't get published. So this was like the epitome of publication bias. But thankfully, we we're using a model that protected that this registered reports model. Um, so we went back and we were able to say, well, no, we, you know, we, we'll present this, like help us with, you know, basically like you can tell us with language, you know, how to present this or if you want more information presented, but this is, you know, we do have the right to have this published. We have the acceptance already in principle. And so something that came out of this was this desire from the peer reviewers and it's a great comment from the peer reviewers to say, okay, that's great. You're presenting the tumor weight and it's great. You're presenting all these other quality control factors that says the drug's working. But it looks like you have small tumors, and you know that's that's kind of odd because tumors shouldn't be growing that slowly. So, do you have any data that you collected during the process that that's tracking the tumor growth over time? So that wasn't something that the original paper showed, and it wasn't really something that we were intending to collect. But we did have some data just by chance, just because that's kind of the standard practice of of the lab to kind of piece that back together at least the best we could. And what it showed was that the tumors, some of them, regressed. So they spontaneously, in this case, they were the control group, spontaneously got smaller. So they began growing, and about halfway through, they shrunk in size. And it's only a small fraction of them, but that instantly confounds a model, an efficacy study, that's trying to say, I can randomize according to a treatment or not a treatment and see if the treatment decreases tumor growth. Because if the tumor growth spontaneously regresses, that's a pretty big confound on an efficacy study. And so the nice thing about eLife is they make all of their peer review open. So if you look at the end of any of these papers, if you go down to the bottom, you see a summary of what the reviewers asked and how we responded as a team. So you see that back and forth. So that so one, that was great for peer review to, to t try to like essentially ask for information and help us like kind of get that part of the, the research out there, right? Because again, it's, it's a good example of it's there, it just doesn't make its way up to the paper all the time. Um, and again, we didn't have it in the original study, but like I, I'm sure they have some data on it. You know, they just they didn't put it in there, not, not because they were trying to hide anything, just because it's not common to put everything that you have there. There's so much more data that one collects. Given the publish or perish nature of academia, Doug and I were interested in the idea that a research project, if approved through peer review as a registered report, receives in principle acceptance for publication regardless of its findings, so long as it's carried out in accordance to its pre-approved design. Tim elaborated on how this dynamic played out with the center's replication. It was new for the, the reviewer, uh, reviewing editors, and definitely for the scientists that were reviewing it, and I think that that caused them just to want to push back. And um, so they're the ones that kind of sent it. It went through. 
I receive an email saying, you know, thanks, but we want you to do these these other experiments. Um, and I'll get into that because actually that part actually is I find it fascinating and it's it's great um, in its own ways. And get once you get past the fact that they were trying to reject it. Um, but then I reached out to to the editorial staff at eLife and I said, hey, we got this email. Um, that basically said that we, you know, they're not going to accept it unless we do more work. That's not how this process was intended to work. That we all agreed on, um, and they were great. And they said, "Oh, you know what? Let's just. I'm going to talk to to the to the to the reviewers and just make sure that they're on the same page of understanding how this actually works." Um, so it got resolved really fast. But the fact that it got raised is actually that's something that is going to be. I think fun, uh, if, you, if you want to use that word, but interesting to, to look at at the end of this project, which is when you get a result like this paper that is counter to the original, um, how do the peer reviewers act compared to if you get a result that's similar to the original study? There's a lot of different things that can be asked about, you know, you know, talking about the confounds more, you know, focusing more on how the two are different, maybe trying to find some technical issue that might have occurred with the replication. All those get raised when you don't see the same result. But when you get the same result, and this is, again, this is anecdotal, all of those differences that still exist, right, regardless of whether you got the same result or not, none of those really get raised, right? They, 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 they sometimes do, but usually those all get glossed over. And it's more of like, good job, you found the same result. And so that really kind of shows you this, this struggle that we have where um, if we're just doing peer review and we're just criticizing a study based on outcomes, we have our own beliefs, our own priors of what one should expect. And if they match onto it, we accept everything along with it. Even if even if it was a mistake, right? We could have had made we could have made a mistake, and nobody's really looking into it. But when you get something that's counter to it, that's when all those details start to matter. And the truth is, we need to shift that mindset and recognize that they matter all the time, right? And it's back to this discussion of of how we're just constantly reducing uncertainty. Um, but the only way you can do that is to appreciate that, in essence, everything is kind of right and wrong at the same time, and those details really are what matter the most. Lastly, Ryan and I asked him to share his thoughts about the kinds of studies that might benefit the most from pre-registration and registered reports, as well as what those benefits are. You know, you, you could make that argument for, you know, should everything that gets pre-registered make it into a published article? And that's a fair debate. But I do think that for questions like this, where you want to know the answer no matter what, and as long as it's well designed, those are the ones that make the best sense to spend the extra resources on getting additional feedback. If not, for anything other than it's going to improve the design of the study. Um, so, I, so I think if there's a way to shift it and put more of the emphasis, and that's essentially what pre-registration, that's what we've been trying to do here at the center and others, put more emphasis on the design, the question, the quality, you know, the approach that you're taking, and, and making sure you make that as rigorous as possible. You know, those are the that's the best way to kind of conduct the research. And then when those outcomes, no matter what you get, you have a lot of confidence in that, even if you can't understand it, even if you don't know why you're getting the result you are, at least you have more confidence in it. And that allows you know the community to kind of consume it better and synthesize it better. That was Tim Arrington and Brian Nosek discussing the Center for Open Science's first replication of an anti-cancer treatment study, which was published in the January 19, 2017 edition of the peer-reviewed open access journal eLife. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org along with other materials discussed during the show. Do you have a tip about something you think other listeners should be reading, listening to, or watching that's related to science? 
If you do, give us a call toll-free at 844-XPLORIT. That's 844-975-6748, and let us know. We've already gotten some great suggestions from listeners on our hotline, like this one. Hi, I'm Carrie, a math educator in Southern California. I'd like to recommend the book The Seven Pillars of Statistical Wisdom by Steven Stigler. It's an amazing history of statistics that people who aren't particularly mathy will enjoy just as much as professional stats people. Thanks. Join us next week on Parsing Science for a special Halloween treat when we'll hear from Beatrice DeGelder about her recent research into strengthening the rubber hand illusion. It's like really eerie. I mean, it has real skin. It has real skin. I mean, it's, it has a grip. The hand has a grip. It's really rather lugubrious. We hope that you will join us again.